You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. I'm so excited to have as our guest today, Mary Kate Carey. She's a dear friend of mine, also from Washington, D.C. area. She's also a graduate of Mr. Jefferson's University, as I am as well. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's going well for us. Uh, she is a senior fellow at the UVA Miller Center. She's a former speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush. She's also a political commentator. You might have heard her on NPR or seen her on the news. She is also the executive producer of 41 on 41. And if you don't remember, President George H.W. Bush was president number 41. And this is a great documentary about President Bush that I had the honor to see at its premiere. And it even had a little cameo from Dana Carvey, which was quite hilarious. Uh, <laughs> she's also an expert on presidential communications and speech writing. Mary Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gail. I think this is my second time. I, I, early on, when you first started your podcast, I remember being on it. So it's an honor to be asked back. Yes, thank you so much for being a repeat guest. And uh, Mary-Kate and I first connected because our children went to school together. And uh, you go to these parties for uh, different people in D.C. And there's kind of a secret handshake, I would say, among Republicans. When you say Mary-Kate? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, Mary-Kate had done a lot of political commentary for NPR. And I was very grateful because she connected me with some of the folks at NPR and I was able to go on. And it is, I will tell you, the the reporters and the journalists at NPR might be some of the nicest people in the entire country. That and yet, of course, my opinions are quite shocking to them. Uh, so I always have to remember my closest liberal friend in law school and and talk to her uh, in my head when I'm actually going on NPR. So what tricks do you use when you go and speak on NPR about these uh, very hot, controversial topics going on? Well, you know, I um, I got asked one time, it was, I want to say the, maybe the 30th or 40th anniversary of NPR, and they flew in all their station managers and major donors to D.C. And we had to pretend like we were on the air in front of a live audience in a hotel ballroom. Ooh. So it was as if we were doing a show, but we were just really doing a panel, I guess you would say. But they said, we're going to we're going to reenact as if we were doing a show on the air. And and they brought in the hosts and everything. And so we we started doing the show. And as as you're aware, uh, you know, there's always a balance on the panel. Um, yes. There's usually a, rep a Republican, a Democrat, and an Independent on their political panels. And, and where I see the choice of stories is where you see a little bit more of the bias. But I always assume, like you do, that I am talking to a, a huge audience that is mostly liberal. Well, this particular day, I um, finished being on the panel, and I saw this crowd of people heading towards me from the audience, and I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> It's all over, you know, is my will in order, you know? Right, and never a good sign. I about to be killed or something. And, um, <laughs> and it, they they were a huge group of conservatives um, who were uh, major donors and supporters of NPR. And uh, they came over to say, you know, stick with it, you know, always go, Mary-Kate, make your arguments, you know? And they were all 
uh, giving me this rah-rah. And I said, are there conservatives that listen to NPR? And they said, oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's pretty much a third, a third, a third. And there are many areas of the United States, uh, mostly rural, where NPR is the only source of news. Yes. Uh, they don't necessarily have local radio. And there are a surprisingly high number of conservatives who get their news from NPR. And, uh, and so I don't feel like that's really a problem anymore once I learned that. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm always polite. And uh, NPR has a culture of not interrupting. And yes. I think that's great. So, um, so I think it's a joy to be on. And I, I've always enjoyed it. And they're, like you said, they're lovely people who work there and uh, very smart, and very good at what they do. They really are. And they are very dedicated to the news. And it it is just fun for me to go blow their minds a little bit. And I, I always feel like I, I don't want to say I'm holding back, but I'm trying to put my most persuasive argument forward right. or, or, you know, start with the premise of the shared value. So we exactly. all share freedom or we all share compassion. And then, and then here's how we get to that point. Um, and I've, I find it interesting. Yeah. Yeah, to have sure. that opportunity to go there and actually have that conversation and, um, and I think people's minds, you know, yes, and model respectful yes. behavior and, uh, you know, make smart arguments that might, you may, they might not agree with you on everything, but you might change one person's mind on something, you know, and that's worth it. Well, and I think when we first met, you said that part of your approach was trying to be reasonable. And yeah. I think particularly given this political environment right now, people on both sides of the argument tend to think the other side is not reasonable at all. Right. So even showing up and having that conversation on NPR, even if you don't change anybody's mind, they at least might think that there are logical reasons for the positions that Republicans hold instead yeah. of just outright bias or ignorance or, you know, any other bad motive. Agreed. So going back to the documentary a little bit, uh, we had President Bush's funeral service in the National Cathedral a few months ago. Tell a little bit about your time with President Bush. So I was a, a speechwriter for President Bush. And uh, when I first joined the staff, I came right off of the 1988 campaign. And I was 23 at the time. By the time I became a speechwriter, I was 24 and um, was a speechwriter for three out of four of the years. The fourth year I went um, of the administration, I went over to the Justice Department to work for then Attorney General Bill Barr, and um, uh, who's now back in the news. We can talk about that if you want. Uh, but yes, but President Bush, um, you know, so because I was so young, I um, was assigned uh, the really what I think are the most fun speeches, but are the most junior speeches. So it would be the 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 uh, what do you call it? Spelling bee winners, the <laughs> Girl Scout of the Year award winners. I uh, three years in a row, I did the turkey pardoning. Very important. Uh, yes. <laughs> and and in a lot of ways, you know, I think President Bush would have been the first to say he he did not consider himself an orator, and he didn't particularly enjoy giving speeches. He was much better one on one in interviews. He was very good at press conferences. Uh, he was very good on his feet, uh, but he didn't particularly enjoy giving a a high stakes speech. And so the ones that were lower stakes and, and were more about people and, uh, you know, normal Americans coming to the White House to be honored for something they'd done extraordinarily well, uh, he, he loved that sort of stuff. So, so I think that's why he and I got along so well is because we, uh, we, we both enjoyed those sort of, Peggy Noonan calls them the slice of life speeches. And, 
And that was uh, great fun for me. And I, it was the best job I'll ever have. And it was uh, a few years later, I went on the um, advisory board of his library. And that allowed me to see him every six months, there'd be a board meeting for the library. And uh, sometimes they'd be down at Texas A&M and we'd get to see the Aggies and the uh, go to a, a Aggie football game or an Aggie basketball game. It was, it was so much fun. And then the other uh, meeting every year was up in Kenny Bunkport. And, and Mrs. Bush was always with him. I got to know her very well. And so uh, as he got older and more infirm, the uh, Bush, Bush world, as we call it, uh, started making more and more of the funeral plans, as all presidents do, former right. presidents. Um, but they decided they wanted someone from Bush world on every network so that the members of the press weren't the only ones defining his legacy. And so I was uh, tasked with going on to CNN. And so I had to forego going to the funeral myself and instead, you know, sat in the booth and, and told stories about George Bush. And uh, I, think it, I think it was the right thing to do because many of the reporters that I was on with uh, had never met George Bush and didn't know him personally. And so I was able to tell all kinds of funny stories and kind of humanize him and uh, talk about what an amazingly humble and uh, gracious man he was, uh, how he was so well qualified to be president, uh, talked about some of his friendships with world leaders all through the years and, and all the great things he did from the big stuff like, um, you know, the end of the Cold War and the first Persian Gulf War uh, to starting the points of light movement to um, some of the domestic achievements like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the uh, Clean Air Act, uh, down to the really personal stuff uh, where I think, for example, one of the reasons he was such a successful leader is because he treated everyone with the same dignity and respect, whether they were the Queen of England or the landscaper at the White House. And uh, I had so many stories about that. And I think that's what young people can learn from him, uh, not to demonize someone else, not to take people for granted, uh, and to treat everyone with the same respect as you would your own brother or sister. And Amen uh, to that. So so it was a it was a joy to be able to do that. And then the end of the week, the very end, he got he got uh, buried down at Texas A&M and I was going to take a rental car back to Houston and fly home the next day and luckily ran into some friends um, at the as they were coming out of the, the graveyard. Um, who were all, you know, longtime family friends and staff. And they said, oh, oh, don't don't take your rental car. Jump in this bus with us, Mary Kay. We'll get you back to Houston. And so I jumped on the bus. And that was the best thing all week because it was all over. And uh, we had an hour and a half on this one of those fancy buses, you know, like a Greyhound bus. Yes. And <laughs> and it was uh all the longtime staff, uh, some of his kids were on the bus. Neil Bush was there. Some of the grandchildren were there. John Meacham was there. Uh, and they had a microphone, and they just passed the microphone up and down the aisle. And we all sat around for an hour and a half and told our greatest George Bush stories. And, uh, and we had wine on the bus. We all to toasted uh, President Bush 41 one last time. And it was, uh, it was something I'll never forget. It was, it was just a great ending to the week, is being with all the people he loved so much. So it was great. That sounds like a beautiful time to reminisce about him. Did you learn anything new in particular about him from that bus journey or anything during the week? Any surprising stories that, you know, you, you were in charge of a documentary about this man. Yeah. But yeah. Was there a um, new story that you learned? 
Uh, I would say, uh, well, I made the mistake. I was wrong. <laughs> about, remember after um, after the Houston funeral, they uh, put him on a train, and the family yes. got on the train too, and the train went very slowly from Houston to College Station. And um, I ha had wrongly assumed that this was a time for the family after this crazy week of this spectacular send off that had so many events and so many logistics to it that I thought this would be the time where the family could actually put their feet up for a minute. You know, right. The, the, the group was getting smaller and smaller as it got closer to the right. barrier. You know, it wasn't thousands of people on that train. Right. Uh, so it was really just the, the closest family and friends were on that train. And I thought uh, I had heard that President Bush um, had picked out the menu and um, and that there was going to be lunch served. And so I said, this is great. You know, thank God these guys get an hour of peace before they have to do the really hard part and bury him. And right. they can all be together and have a nice, peaceful moment. Well, I was totally wrong. The the crowds were huge uh, out in rural Texas. Uh, people drove in and filled the streets and <clears throat> excuse me, stood for mm -hmm hours waiting for the train to go by in freezing rain. I mean, it was miserable. Uh, there were cowboys on, on horses and, <clears throat> excuse me, apparently uh, President George W. Bush stood the whole time hanging out the window in the pouring wow. rain, waving at everybody. Uh, they did not get to put their feet up <laughs> and have a peaceful moment and eat some lunch. Right. And afterwards, I was talking to Jean Becker about it, and she said that when President Bush was choosing the menu, um, he said, well, I would like to eat, uh, I, don't, I forget what the menu was. Let's say it's turkey sandwiches or something, right? right. He said, I would like to eat turkey sandwiches and some iced tea and some pork rinds or, you know, no broccoli, you know, this kind of stuff. And um, they said, sir, uh, that's the, we will uh, honor your wishes, but you, we just need to remind you, you won't actually be there. <laughs> and and uh, he says, oh, I'll be there. I just won't be eating. Oh, and I was like, isn't that sweet? Like, he's like, oh, no, I'll be right with you. Don't worry. I'll be there. And I just thought that was such a sweet thing for him to say. That, that is his spirit would be with them through the whole thing. It was, it was beautiful. Well, we attended the funeral. Uh, our son was one of the singers in the choir. And we were, you know, very at fortunate at the cathedral, at the oh, cathedral service. And I was just blown away by the stories that uh, Senator Simpson told. And I think for me, the most touching, I mean, there were many touching mm -hmm. moments. You could debate it. But I think the most touching moment was when President Bush's pastor from Texas was mm -hmm. talking about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And he talked about Secretary Baker, who was, you know, mm -hmm. one of the most powerful men in in American politics historically. Uh, he was rubbing President Bush's feet uh, in those final hours. And just to think about that kind of friendship that that President Bush and Secretary Baker had, and the grief that he he must have experienced, and then the camera panned to Secretary Baker, and and he dropped his head, and you could tell he got very choked up about it. And I think that goes to your point that you know President Bush was president. That's amazing. Um, he did lots of you know important things. We last week interviewed Scott Stump, who's the president of the Desert Storm Desert Shield Memorial Association. They're trying to build a memorial. Uh, near the National Mall in D.C. to to memorialize uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. 
right near the Lincoln Memorial because that was such an operation of liberation and freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I think this goes to your point, President Bush. It's it wasn't. I mean, maybe the legacy he he left most of all is in his relationships with individual people and and his uh, I don't know influence or I, I think that came across a lot in his funeral. So I want to take that and build on it from your testimony before Congress in the nomination of William Barr. Now, explain to us a little bit of how you came to know Bill Barr and how you came to to testify before Congress on his behalf in his nomination hearings. So um, so most speechwriters at the White House last about two years. It's a high burnout job. It's really a job for young people. There, there's a reason there's not a lot of 75-year-old speechwriters at the White House. <laughs> so ah. It's a crazy life with long hours and you got to be able to jump on a plane and go. And, uh, you know, it's it's crazy. And so I felt like I sort of beat the odds and I didn't start really getting burned out until the third year. And so the end of the third year, I started saying, oh my gosh, you know, I'm falling apart here. And, um, and so I, uh, you might recall that Senator John Hines, who is Hines ketchup, uh, he died in a plane crash. Yes. And then, uh, he was, his Senate seat opened up and so the then Attorney General Dick Thornburg was from Pennsylvania. He decided to go back home and run for John Hines' Senate seat. And by the way, footnote to history, Mrs. Hines ran off with Senator John Kerry, who oh, later yes. became Secretary of State. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, um, yes. And another footnote to history is uh, Dick Thornburg ran against Harris Wofford for that Senate seat. And Harris Wofford's uh, campaign manager was the young James Carville. And (laughs) and it was this um, big upset that Harris Wofford won the Senate seat and Dick Thornburg didn't. And that became kind of the canary in the coal mine that perhaps President Bush's reelection might not be uh, guaranteed. Assured, yes. That is when Bill Clinton scooped up Bill as James Carville and made him his campaign manager. And and so that was the beginning of that. But anyway, so uh, so a new attorney general had to get named. And Bill Barr was the deputy attorney general of the United States. And so President Bush nominated him to be the new attorney general. And he needed a spokesman. And so the word went out, does anybody you know, want to oversee the speechwriters and be the spokesman for the attorney general? And so I raised my hand and said, well, that might be a little uh, slower pace and better money. And, you know, yeah, that sounds like a good thing to do. So I went over there and oversaw the speechwriters and was the... Um, deputy director of policy and communication. But really what I was, was there were two spokesmen for the attorney general. There's a separate set of spokesmen for the department of justice and they oversee, they're like civil servant, you know, um, you know, what do you call them? Yeah. Civil servants who are, um, in charge of putting out the press releases about litigation and, you know, class action lawsuits and whistleblowers and stuff like that. Um, this was different. They, they're, they're, you know, civil servants. We were political appointees. Right. And so it was Paul McNulty who went on to become deputy attorney general under um, George W. Bush. And Paul had five kids at the time. So he managed the sort of Washington press corps. And I was not married yet. So I got assigned to do the traveling press corps. So if if the attorney general went out to Omaha, I would go with him and make sure he got on the live at five and made sure the local reporters all got to interview him and 
you know, set up the press conferences and things like that. So it was, it turned out to be a crazy job too, which I, you know, <laughs> so much that <laughs> idea. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> it was better money. So that's good. But, um, uh, so I ended up, this was in the days of asset forfeiture and they had seized a small prop plane from a drug dealer. And that became the attorney general's plane because he was under some <laughs> threat that he couldn't fly commercial. And it was wow. um, a four seater and there was no bathroom on the plane. And um, so, so if we were flying coast to coast, we stopped in Salina, Kansas, and everybody would get out and go to the bathroom and refuel the plane and keep going. But anyway, uh, wow. so so I got to know him very well, as you can imagine. And uh, uh, we had a great time. He was a terrific attorney general. And like President Bush 41, he had this very broad group of friends uh, who still are his friends to this day. Uh, he, he's, he's very good at treating everyone the same way, uh, giving everyone respectful, you know, listening, whether they are the secretary answering the phones at the Department of Justice or a, uh, a young police chief in uh, Peoria or the, um, you know, Ch Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. You know, it's, uh, it's remarkable how similar the two are, which is why I think President Bush probably chosen for that job. And, and he was very successful. And as a result, he's now uh, one of the few people in American history to be asked to be attorney general twice. And, and I can so, certainly see why he, he was. That really speaks good. volumes. Yeah, it tells you volumes about him. I'm going to link to your written testimony in the transcript of this podcast. I think the thing that really jumped out at me about your testimony, well, two things. I mean, he seems like an amazing guy. I've never met him, so I don't have any personal knowledge of him. But I would say it did seem like in your testimony that you emphasized that he was a gentleman. Like, I think yeah. you specifically used that word. I you did. talked about his respect for women. You yeah. talked about how he had, I think it was three daughters. When you were working with him and he was away a lot and it must have been uh, difficult for the family because he was on the road a lot and he had a very demanding job. But all of his daughters chose to go to law school. And yeah. I couldn't help but think, were you signaling through your testimony in this Me Too era that there is no cause for concern with Bill Barr, that your interactions with him flying on this little plane all over the country, that there was not going to be anything that we saw in perhaps other confirmation hearings in the last six months. Correct. I thought, why, uh, why sit and wait to get asked that question? <laughs> right. I thought, you know, preempt the question and just say, this man is an absolute gentleman. And I, um, I was, you know, very impressed with the way he um, carried himself, the way his uh, daughters turned out, uh, the way that he uh, was so kind to me when I was so young. And, and I was not a lawyer. I was one of the few people on his staff that was not a lawyer. And that didn't make a difference at all. And he, he just treated me as if I was uh, the right person in the right place at the right time. And, you know, he was just very, um, very kind to me. And, uh, there's one story I, I told that's, I referenced it briefly in the testimony, but then um, I can tell you the, the rest of the story is, so we, um, we go to, I think it was Richmond, and uh, he, was, he was very involved in this Operation Weed and Seed, which was something he came up with, which was to go into uh, high crime neighborhoods, weed out the violent criminals, and then seed uh, the, the good programs that would help people 
have more opportunity, get a shot at a good education, start their own businesses, uh, be able to buy a house, you know, all the things right. that make a neighborhood thrive again. And so um, he partnered with Jack Kemp, who was then Secretary HUD, uh, Secretary yes. of HUD. And there was a high crime neighborhood in, in Richmond that they were going to do Operation Weed and Seed. So it was going to be a joint press conference between Bill Barr and Jack Kemp at, you know, two o'clock, let's say. And so we all pull in, in all the limos. I'm there because it's outside of Washington. So it's my job. And, um, and as we're pulling in, the FBI says, um, listen, about, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago, right before this happened, there was a, a takedown of a gang and it got very, you know, dicey there. There was a lot of bullets flying. So we think everything's okay now and the, the, the area has been secured. But just in case there is a stray bullet, uh, we have two bulletproof vests here, one for you, Mr. Kemp, one for you, Mr. Barr. And would you put these on before you go to the podium? And I'm standing right there. And Bill says, um, well, what about her? And they said, uh, you know, we only have two bulletproof vests and uh, wow. <laughs> uh, she's out of luck. <laughs> More important for you two, not her. Two right. Vests on. And of course, we're surrounded by FBI agents who all have guns and bulletproof vests. So I'm the only one right. not have one. Right. And and so Bill looks at them and says, um, well, that's not that's not really going to work. Um, <laughs> and so he says, here, I got an idea, Mary Kate. We'll be OK. We'll go to the podium and you stay here. Get back into the armored limo and just keep your head down. OK, but don't go <laughs> up the podium with us. Just stay here and get in the limo and keep your head down. And right. I would say that like. I couldn't believe he was even worrying about this. I think any other guy would have strapped on the bulletproof vest and said, all right, let's go and gone right up to the podium and wouldn't have thought for a minute about the 28 year old kid standing there who did the bulletproof vest, you know? And, um, and so I, I referenced that in my, in my um, testimony just to say, this tells you volumes. Um, and this is why people admire him so much and are so loyal to him. And and believe me, even though it, I was the um, I was the person that you know didn't have the bulletproof vest in that in that situation, uh, the agents who were all standing there heard this whole thing, and all looked at each other and were kind of nodding, and sort of said, you know, this is a good guy. And not every other attorney general would have gotten that uh, reaction, I don't think. And uh, he came to my wedding. He and his wife came to my wedding. I got married shortly after we left office. And um, and the agents all came because I love them too. And we've all stayed oh, in touch all these years. The agents still send me Christmas cards 30 years later. Um, and it, it's just very sweet. He's, uh, he's, he's really is a gentleman. It's uh, a great, he's a great guy. He'll be a great attorney general. Sounds like he is a real servant leader, as they yeah. like to say. And a brilliant legal mind, which everybody else on the testimony panel right. was addressing his legal brilliance. And I was there just to basically tell great stories. <laughs> right, right. Well, that sounds like a breath of fresh air in Washington. Yeah. We have lots of great lawyers, but not lots of great servant leaders. <laughs> yeah. And he, he certainly is one of them. He'll, I don't, I don't doubt for a minute he will sail through the confirmation. So he, he'll be, he'll be good. Uh, so two final questions. Yeah. Uh, you and I are both graduates of UVA. There was a lot of controversy last week about the governor of Virginia. First, he seemed to say in a radio interview that he was in favor of infanticide. Um, he tried to back off of that. And then a couple days later, 
that medical school yearbook photo was published. Uh, I think he was age 25 when that came out. And then we saw his press conference this weekend where he kind of went backtrack, backtracking on whether he was in the photo, um, the very offensive photo from his medical yearbook. Uh, if you were counseling him for that press conference that he did. Uh, it's not presidential communications, but certainly political communications. What advice would you have given him before that press conference? Well, part of the story was when the when the story first broke about the yearbook. Yes. And, and he put out a written statement first. Right. And the written statement did not have him resigning, but the written statement had a very um, apologetic tone. He was horrified at this. It was very well written. And then the press conference was a complete 180. Where yes, not horrified and not apologetic. <laughs> no, it was really to the point where I thought, did he not have anything <laughs> to do with that written statement? Did someone else write it and say, "Sir, we're putting yeah. this out"? I it think really you're right. struck me as a total disconnect. And uh, and then the whole Michael Jackson and his oh. wife thing to tell him not to moonwalk. Um, I, I think something is very wrong here, and I can't quite figure out the explanation for it. And uh, obviously, I I think he needs to resign. He should have resigned on Friday at, when he right. put that statement out. Is when he should have resigned. Yeah. Uh, and and so I find the whole thing very disturbing. And and why this didn't come out sooner is mystifying to me. How he got elected with this out there is mystifying. And, uh, and when you add the infanticide comments earlier, which from a, a policy point of view are equally horrific, uh, yes, thank I, you. I, I just, um, I find the whole thing to be a, um, a complete disgrace. And I, I wish him uh, well, I hope he comes to his senses and does the right thing and get and leaves office. But I'm I'm concerned that he's he's just not uh, acting right. Like there's something off here. And right, right. I, I, but I, I think most people don't realize that the Virginia governorship is a one-term governorship, right, so it's very right. hard for anyone. He doesn't really need that the state legislature to do stuff. He he is the executive of Virginia for the next period of time. And obviously he's not going to have any political career after this, but uh, it, it would be hard to force him to resign. Well, I think uh, that it, it, one insight that, that somebody who shared with me last night is, so the, so the Lieutenant governor is African-American and also democratic. And uh, under the current rules in Virginia, if governor Northam were to step aside, uh, the Lieutenant governor would step up and be the, governor for the next three years out of four, and then could run for a second term, which would really be his first term because there is no right. second term. In right. So, so from the democratic strategic, you know, DNC uh, chairman's point of view, uh, there is nothing to lose by saying uh, that Northam should step down because chances are you could oh, have right. a democratic governor for seven years instead of for right. the next three. And so I think that, helped explain why so many Democrats came out so fast and said he's got to resign because they had nothing to lose. If okay. uh, if it had been a Republican lieutenant general, yeah, lieutenant um, governor, uh, things may have been a little different. But uh, that, that I think that the, the political side of it 
as you're pointing out, is is fascinating because Virginia, I think, is the only state in the union where you cannot get reelected as governor, which is needs to change. It's it's you're an instant lame duck. It's a dumb system. Lame lame duck immediately. Yeah. So here's my final question. We have the State of the Union coming up this week, and you are an expert in presidential communications, and you have the connection with President George H.W. Bush's uh, administration. A lot of people have said that President Trump's build the wall is equivalent to President George H.W. Bush's read my lips, no new taxes. We're going to see this State of the Union. We're going to see what uh kind of chessmanship President Trump has to try and deliver on this campaign promise of build the wall. What advice would you give President Trump going into this very controversial state? I don't think we've ever seen a state of the union, the buildup to a state of a union so controversial as this one. What would you, what advice would you give President Trump? So President Trump is different from his predecessors in that he has a direct pipeline that he has been using for good or for bad <laughs> uh, directly to the American people through Twitter. Yes. And um, in the past, other presidents, say President Reagan or President Bush 41, or even as recent as um, early Obama, um, presidents used the State of the Union address to go around the mainstream media and directly address the American people. The problem is that the State of the Union address is not an interesting speech to give. It's a legislative laundry list in a lot of ways. And you're talking about your priorities. There's no room for a lot of stories. There's not a room for any humor. Uh, it's, it's a difficult slog and it's a long speech. And so it's hard to use that as an effective communications tool. That is why President Reagan started with, I don't know if you remember, Lenny Skutnik, the um, yes, who dove into the Potomac River to save the people on the Air Florida flight. And that was the beginning of trying to bring stories into the State of the Union to try and make it a more effective communications device. So so in the past, that was why you did the State of the Union was to try and speak over the heads of the people in the chamber and talk to the cameras and talk to the American people. Well, President Trump doesn't necessarily need to do that. And he's been having trouble getting the people in the chamber to negotiate with him. And right. remember he kept inviting them to lunch and they won't come. Yes. They all left town and he stayed there waiting, you know, yes. and I'm so, lonely in the white house. Yeah. So for one, one time here, I think maybe you don't talk to so much to the American people. Maybe you try and really talk to the people in that room and sort of put them on the spot and see if you can persuade them to change their minds and turn on the charm and he, you know, he has a reputation in person. I've never been in the room with Donald Trump, but I've heard that when you're in the room with him, he can be very, very charming. And, you know, that's not a crazy idea to don't go in like he has in the past, loaded for bear. Um, maybe this time he should try a little something different and, and talk to the people in the room and see if he can convince them of, uh, as you were saying, the shared values, the things that they agree on. They all are in favor of border security. And there are many people who want to do a deal that involves the dreamers. And there's there's a bargain to be had in there. And I think he could uh, he could turn the tables on them and not do what everyone expects him to do and try something a little different. So that would be my my advice to him is turn the tables on them in the room and see what you can see what you can do to change their minds and come out with a win. 
That is a brilliant suggestion, adequately um, directed to President Trump and his uh, <laughs> speechwriters, I think, and you gave it for free. So I should be charging millions for my advice. Oh, well. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mary Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about you or where can they find your you on social media if they, if they want to uh, continue the conversation and learn more about what you're doing? Great. Uh, I have a website, MaryKateCarry.com, and I am on Twitter at MKCarry. And I have a podcast myself called Bipartisan, uh, in which we uh, try and cross the aisle and talk to uh, Democrats. It's an it's a Obama speechwriter and myself, and we interview all kinds of fascinating people and uh, have a great time. So it's Bipartisan on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. So um, join us. Thank you for Thank having you, me. Thank you, Mary-Kate. joy to talk to you, Gail. I always... Uh, admire everything you're doing and I just think you do a great job so thanks this is Gail Trotter you can follow me on Facebook you can like me on Twitter you can like me on Instagram you can subscribe to my YouTube channel you can support this podcast on Patreon and we have brand new right in DC t-shirts if you support us on Patreon this is right in DC You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.